Introduction For what it's worth, Buffalo Springfield, 1966 This is a book about digital disruption at an industrial scale. How the music industry took the hit first, 20 years ago, and how it felt to be in the middle of that tsunami and being rolled around by it. It's also about digital disruption from the disruptor's perspective. Four companies that thought they'd be sprinters, but discovered they needed to be marathon runners, and how, in these different cases, the relationships between entrepreneur and investor changed. And finally, we explore digital disruption from a national perspective, how national policy-based interventions work, what the landscape of innovation looks like, what works well, and where it has shortcomings. We explore the digital catapult, a unique institution that feels a little like the MIT Media Lab of the 1990s, using public funds to address the challenges and opportunities of digital disruption from a policy perspective, an industrial sector viewpoint, and from the entrepreneurial position. Throughout these discussions, we shall also explore the shifting climate of business culture and values. We'll look at what the expectations of corporate culture should be and what a good tech-driven business actually is. Finally, we'll head into a meditation on the metaverse and consider how all these factors may work themselves out in Web 3.0 and what might be needed to avoid a future metaverse dystopia. This is also a personal book about what life is like being an innovator inside a corporate world and about how to take the courage of your convictions and escape the corporate world into the wilder and looser environs of entrepreneurialism. Trying to innovate is hard. I was the media director at Virgin Records in 1993. I was supposed to be publicising bands, not staying up late figuring out how to access university libraries in the United States over the internet. I was so determined to try to share the importance of what I was playing with and how I knew it was going to change the industry, but it was hard to get anyone's attention. They were all focused on business as usual. I once chased Rupert Perry, the president of EMI Europe, along a corridor and into the washroom in an attempt to get him to pay attention to our new young internet programme. That was in 1997. The following year, I was transferred to Los Angeles to be the EMI gatekeeper for internet deals. I left a year later to move up to San Francisco and found a startup myself. Then it turned out that being an innovator in a startup is hard too, especially when the markets collapse around you and a worldwide terrorist event happens the attacks on 11th of September 2001, 9-11. The truth is that I've had imposter syndrome throughout my entire career. I never was entirely sure that I knew what I was doing. The narrative is powerful because it gives you the story you can tell yourself. If you can't believe your own story, nobody else will either. Everyone needs a narrative. Governments, industries, startups, even investors. And of course, narratives clash. Creators and label execs clashed. Labels got angry because the Featured Artists Coalition was undermining the narrative. The story that the content industries had decided to tell government was at odds with the story the artists were telling. Ministers need at least to appear to listen. And in the investor corner, the narrative that says unicorns are best remains troubling and has had disastrous consequences. It ruined people's lives. The investors' argument that we need more unicorns was a sophisticated acknowledgement that they wanted to turn a fictional creature into a reality, and that money had the power to do that. But more often than not, they had proved that unicorns are indeed a fiction. More about imposter syndrome. I've always felt like an outsider. When I was at a label, I could never discuss football. I knew nothing about it then, 
and I know nothing about it now. My son tells me I support Arsenal. When I was in Silicon Valley, it was clear that the Valley is a club and Sandhill Road is the clubhouse. I didn't feel like I was a member. I was not a techie with a computer science degree. I was a music industry guy trying to figure out whether the Valley was cool or not. I was probably over-concerned that Uplister would not be seen as cool and therefore would not appeal to the labels. Truth was, Uplister disrupted the label's narrative, so they were never going to help us. So what is the profile of a true innovator? We spend some time in this book trying to figure that out. It certainly includes a high degree of creative destruction. Every institution, every company I worked in disappeared after I went there. My university, Cardiff, became part of the University of Wales. Bedford College in London was merged with Royal Holloway, lost its lovely Regent's Park campus and moved to Egham. Virgin EMI no longer exist as independent companies, but are a part of Universal Music Group. Uplister folded, Sibelius went to Avid, Symmetric went to Apple, Shazam went to Apple. Each of them was taken apart and put back together again differently, acquired, consolidated, disappeared. None of the jobs that I did in my entire career until I got to Digital Catapult had existed before I joined or had been done by anyone else. What an amazing amount of change, like a vast game of Minecraft. This book begins in the last days of the analogue music industry, with vinyl records giving way to aluminium CDs and digital files looming on the horizon. It closes with what might be the end, or at least the end of the beginning, of the digital revolution that over the past three decades has swept away almost all trace of that analogue world. But what will come next? We stand at the dawn of a new revolution, one that promises to erode the distinction between the online and offline worlds. The emergence of the so-called metaverse promises an incredible range of new possibilities for the ways we live and work, and also new perils to avoid and overcome. How can we chart a course through this exciting but risky world? In some ways, we've been here before. Back in the early 1990s, the internet was an anarchic realm, visited by only a few intrepid souls and understood by even fewer. Even though it would revolutionise the way music was made, distributed and sold in little more than a decade. At the onset of this period of immense change, I was working at the heart of the recording industry, then at the height of its glamour, wealth and pomp. Intoxicating though it could be, I found the internet more intoxicating still, with its promise of limitless connectivity and freedom. That promise was fulfilled by the emergence in 1993 of two novel technologies, MP3 and the World Wide Web, that conspired to create an existential threat to the global recording industry in the form of a tsunami of file sharing. The major companies initially tried to ignore file sharing, then to sue it out of existence, targeting not just the creators of sharing software, but its own potential customers. By the time they accepted it might be better to go with the flow, it was too late. For all their might, they failed to turn the tide for many years. Eager to make the future rather than be drowned by it, I moved on to an entrepreneur's life amid the anything-goes dot-com mania of Silicon Valley and the turbulence of companies crossing the divide from the old analogue world of disks and boxes to the new online universe of files and software. Over the next decade, I enjoyed some spectacular successes and suffered some highly instructive failures, running and selling two businesses and sitting on the boards of several more. I suspect we learned far more from our failures than our successes but we'll come back to that. I looked on as more and more industries followed music into the digital realm, 
and had a hand in helping a few along the way. I had a front row seat for the dot-com boom, the rise of digital titans like Apple, Google and Facebook, and now for the emergence of the metaverse. When I sat down to write this book, I intended to recount that journey and to relate what I see as the opportunities we collectively discovered and sometimes squandered, and the challenges we faced and sometimes failed along the way, tracking the evolution of the internet and of digital society around us along the way. As I progressed, however, I realised there were many questions we still haven't answered satisfactorily today. How do people and companies respond to rapid technological evolution and profound change? Where do founders get the tenacity and self-belief needed to continue their missions against all odds? What is the essence of good entrepreneurship and investment? The answers to these questions, in the first 30 years of the digital revolution, have not had results we would regard as wholly admirable. People and companies react to change by embracing either denial or disruption, neither of which are entirely productive responses. Founders have been motivated by unimaginable levels of wealth and power, untrammeled by considerations of ethics or justice, and good business has come to mean aggressive, amoral growth at all costs, regardless of the price that ends up being paid by creators, customers or society. Despite all the positives that digital technology has brought us, we've experienced a staggering change of perspective, with a dawning realisation that the hero brands of the dot-com boom, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, have become today's villainous digital monopolists. Responsible, passionate entrepreneurs building stable businesses have often been elbowed aside by edgier operators, promising overnight fortunes while both creators and customers were ruthlessly exploited. Wrapped inside that is the realisation that the alpha male scale-at-all-costs aggression championed by Silicon Valley and exemplified by its greatest unicorns has led to toxic work environments, economic and social inequities and socially harmful outcomes. As I described in Digital Medieval, the 2013 precursor to this book, the original internet dream of freedom and sharing has given way to a new medievalism, with the once freewheeling digital realm divided into enclaves ruthlessly controlled by a handful of imperial tech demigods, under whom countless cyber serfs toil for meagre reward. Technologies that appear to bring us together have instead, all too often, driven us apart. The more our lives have tilted towards digital interaction, the more we've seen how it can take us to the brink of dehumanisation and extremism. More recently, the COVID-19 pandemic led to a great lacuna in our lives and an acceleration of these trends. For those of us fortunate enough not to be gravely affected, it enforced a pause for thought, a cessation for a while of the everyday course of life, work and play. And that cessation of physical activity led to the rapid expansion of our digital existence. Every aspect of human life, talking to friends, holding business meetings, seeking professional advice, was conducted within the confines of windows on screens. In the space of months, we adopted technologies and ways of working that might have otherwise taken years to become the norm. Companies like the one I've had the privilege to lead, Digital Catapult, the UK's authority on advanced digital technology, experienced great gains in efficiency and productivity as we locked ourselves to our screens and focused our conversations on what really mattered and what really needed to get done. Small wonder 
that we're trying to preserve some of those benefits within our new business-as-usual model of hybrid working. But at the same time, we've become even more aware of the fact that we can't afford to lose the richness of face-to-face, human-to-human interactions. Without the empathy and roundedness of relationships that such interactions bring, it is harder to build trust, stumble on serendipitous connections, and dream up imaginative opportunities. Lockdowns and the effective closing of society caused by the pandemic gave social media even more power and influence over our lives, and particularly over the lives of adolescents, with negative consequences that we're still struggling to understand. But some of the results have been easy to see. A shifting of political discourse to the very edges of previous acceptability and a rise in groupthink and mob rule in many parts of society from cultural analysis to the US capital. Respect for hard facts and considered debate is in decline. The very basis of our precious Western democracy feels threatened. The digital story is not over, though. There is still great power and great potential in emerging digital technologies. We have generated more data in the last two decades than in the entire previous history of civilization. We're now starting to distill small amounts of knowledge and understanding out of this data. We're starting to enrich and empower our own lives and the lives of others by using the tools. And we're starting to mobilize for social change by using the connections. We're piecing together narratives and plans that are helping us to shape and navigate our continually evolving digital world. And in the face of a growing tech clash, innovators have to remain curious, positive, optimistic and open to achieve our goals. And however naive it may seem, we must believe in utopian and not dystopian outcomes. So we need to think hard about what we really want from the next suite of emerging technologies, which promise to be every bit as revolutionary in their own ways as the World Wide Web was in its day. As with the original medieval period, the continued march of technology holds out the promise of a new flowering of creativity and innovation, a digital renaissance, if you will. For all that the competitive landscape has changed dramatically over the past three decades, some things have remained constant. The pace of change, the addictiveness of connectivity and screens. But it's my fascination with innovation that still makes me want to get up in the morning and find out what the future holds. There are choices to be made, and those choices are more obviously ours to make today than ever before. There were several good, simple reasons why music led the way when it came to digital technology. Music's appeal is global. Even language barriers pose only a limited challenge to its appeal across borders. Its product was easily turned into very small digital files that could be easily shared across the early, slow-moving internet. So music led the way in developing the commercial and social potential of the web more than any other field. Where music led, Everything else followed, books, films, television, and then shopping, travel, accommodation, dating, and pretty much everything else. I've brought the lessons I learned working in and around the music industry to bear in my role as the chief executive of Digital Catapult. And the first half of this book relates how those experiences in cyberspace, in Silicon Valley, and in the UK have informed my views on the future of digital business. The job of the Catapult is to encourage the development and early adoption of emerging digital technologies in UK companies, whether in startups, scale-ups, or traditional businesses. We operate primarily in the creative industries and the manufacturing sector. While the focus of this book is largely on the creative side of things, we often see the relevance of experiences in creative companies 
to how the impact of digitisation is felt in traditional heavy industrial companies. The UK is one of the world's most advanced digital economies. But there is still plenty of distance to go, and still plenty of scope for the next generation of digital technologies, immersive environments, artificial intelligence, distributed ledgers, to be adopted more thoughtfully than the previous ones. Witnessing the evolution of technology and business models over the past 30 years has left me with a distinct sense of peril as we contemplate the next great leap forward in the digital revolution, the so-called metaverse. That term, the metaverse, is taken from one of the founding texts of cyberculture, Neil Stevenson's 1992 sci-fi novel Snow Crash, and represents the ultimate ascendance of the online world to the point where it equals and even subsumes our corporeal existence. If that's what's in store, we had better make sure it's the kind of place we really want to live in. For many of us, it promises the ultimate freedom to be whoever you want to be, to go anywhere and do anything, almost indistinguishably from the real thing. But if being locked down taught us anything, it's that there is no substitute for the real thing of human interaction face to face. The excitement offered by some visions of the metaverse is that it is as much of an escape from real life as it is a substitute for it. Unfortunately, there are worrying signs that the metaverse will be built by the same people using the same methods as the current online world and that the resulting harms could be even greater. That would be an enormous missed opportunity, perhaps the final missed opportunity of the digital revolution. To avoid that, we need to look for alternative perspectives hidden in the backwaters of the great river of technological and business development that has roared along over three tumultuous decades. To answer my opening questions, how do we create the conditions that would enable responsible technology-driven entrepreneurship and maintain sight of our values? Undoubtedly, we need to chart our course according to business values, not just financial returns, and tempered by social considerations, not just investors' priorities. Those business values and social considerations are embedded in the work we do at Digital Catapult, and we hope in the companies and organisations we help to embrace the possibilities of digital technology. It is by no means easy, but the effort is worthwhile because the prize is great. I hope that the metaverse, where so many strands of emergent technology are set to converge, can also be where many strands of a kinder, more inclusive, more diverse and more forgiving business environment converge, where relationships transcend transactions, where fair prices are paid for fairly created products, where openness trumps the proprietary, and where our virtual selves are true to our real selves. That would finally deliver on the original dream of the internet and the metaverse, a digital renaissance. <laughs>